Maori, warm Pacific greetings, and welcome to the Pacific Wayfinder. My name is Eliora Malifa. I'm very excited for this podcast today, to say the least. Joining us is Ms. Aka Rimon and His Excellency Mr. Anote Tong. Aka is one of the Australia Pacific Security College's four inaugural PhD scholarship candidates and is also head of the World Bank in Kiribati. Joining us also is His Excellency Mr. Anote Tong, former president of Kiribati and also a very, very strong international advocate of climate change. Between the two of our guests today, there's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Thank you both for joining me from Tarawa. Welcome. Uh, how is the weather over there? Korapa Eliora, it is lovely to meet you. So it's Marian greetings from Kiribati. I would like at the outset to thank you for this opportunity to join you on this podcast and share a glimpse of the research that I will be doing on Kiribati. I also wish to acknowledge the Australia Pacific Security College for this golden opportunity to undertake PhD studies at the ANU as part of the APSC Scholarship Awards. Mm, the weather in Tarawa at the moment is very nice and warm. I do not envy the middle of winter, which you are going through right now, I believe. <laughs> okay, and um, very glad to join you too uh, this afternoon and uh, see what I can contribute to the conversation. And I look forward to the exchange. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you. Okay, I'd like to start by asking you to both please talk about your backgrounds, what you've done in the past and how you came to where you are currently with your work. Um, your Excellency, you need no introduction, but I will start with you, please. Uh, thank you. Well, uh, I guess my background is, is not very much of a secret. I, I, I've been in office in, in Kiribati for three terms from 2003 to 2016. And uh, during that period, one of the things that really uh, caught my attention was the, uh, the challenge of climate change. It was uh, in the early stages, it was very much a uh, scientific issue, okay? It did not really receive much of a human focus. And I think um, perhaps because of the, the, the high controversy, the ongoing high controversy on the science, uh, which we now have realized that it was maybe had been uh, um, driven by the, uh, the, the, um, the lobbying by the, the, the fossil fuel industry. But uh, even, even at the time when the science was not clear, when I first had any possibility that uh, climate change would result in, in a marginal degree in sea level rise, it was really a matter of concern, especially for countries like Kiribati on the very front line of climate change. So any suggestion that there would be a rise in sea level was a serious, would be a serious security issue for us. So during my very first delivery at the United Nations General Assembly, I made reference to that. And of course, uh, it was interesting because I was alone to do that. And I can assure you, it was a bit lonely. You know, wondering whether I made any sense or whether I was making a fool of myself. But of course, very fortunately, uh, in following years, uh, other Pacific leaders began to see the, the real implications of what climate change would mean for, for their communities, their people. And so uh, then I, I guess the region, we started pushing as a region uh, in, in, a cons uh, in a consolidated fashion, pushing the international, this, this issue at the international level. I've been doing this ever since. I, I joined the Conservation International. I, 
I work with um, a number of uh, organizations, including Greenpeace, and uh, you know, just advocating, trying to tell the world that this was serious, that uh, it's not just uh, science for the sake of science, it's not the environmental issue for the sake of the environment, it was about the people. But it was, uh, it's a long journey. Uh, it was uh, somewhat lonely initially, but it, uh, it picked up momentum, and I'm so glad to see that everybody's doing it. But we are still talking about dealing with climate change. We, we have to come to realize that there are, there's gonna be huge casualties coming, and we need to address that issue. We still have not fully addressed it because we're still wrestling it. Uh, unlike COVID-19, where we have, a, uh, we have one enemy. Yes. With climate change, we are our own enemy, okay? We are fighting each other. So that's been my focus, and uh, I continue to do that until today. Thank you for that, Your Excellency. Aka, what path has led you to the PhD research you're now doing with the help of the Australia Pacific Security College? Sure, thank you. And Maori again, Eliora, and greetings from Kiribati. I guess coming in after His Excellency opened up the discussion this afternoon um, is, is, could not be more fitting. It puts into perspective for me where I came in on the scene of um, climate change and security as a challenge for a small island like Kiribati. So let me give you a bit of a background on myself and where I started with all this. Um, I'm a journalist uh, by training. I left university in 2003, joining the Tong-led administration as a press liaison officer. So I've worked in government for the last 18 years, and I spent significant time in the Ministry of Education and Labor, where I led two flagship programs to reform the formal education and um, vocational training sectors. So central to these programs was the strategic alignment of our skilled youths with employment um, opportunities in Kiribati and abroad, hence the start of this interest to connect the dots between education and training and employment. Amid, of course, a backdrop of climate security issues confronting us as one of the most vulnerable countries in the world um, to climate um, change. My last posting in government was as head of uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Immigration, where the former president was Minister of Foreign Affairs and Immigration. I worked very closely with then president to um, lead national, regional and international campaigns for action against climate change. Being engaged in national activities, in particular within the region as a member of the forum um, officials committee providing advice to the leaders on the climate agenda and taking these recommendations out to the international um, arena for global actions as explained by His Excellency earlier on is in itself a rich experience that I have learned from and which has also deepened my interest in this research or this topic. After government, I joined the World Bank at the start of its scale-up program to the Pacific, bringing to the country large-scale investments to build resilience against climate change. We delivered a climate-proofing road infrastructure at the time of the last um, period of the Tong administration. We're preparing to deliver our first ever clean water supply system. We're supporting economic reform processes during COVID times and financial global crises and health investments to help Kiribati prepare and respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. <clears throat> Excuse me. So putting all these bits of work and experiences together makes it impossible for me not to affiliate directly with this effort to address the climate security challenges, which is, as I said, 
on many many occasions is a, a issue about survival. But in Kiribati, we realize that it covers the spectrum of all development and it's not just coastal erosion it's about the fresh water that we drink increased in salinity you know the the worry of where to move next next time that the tidal spring or tidal wave um, comes up on shore i have become too involved personally and professionally in the process to believe that the onus is now on me to give this work back as a contribution to my country i'll, I'll stop there Amazing. Um, could you also please give a brief rundown of your research focus, Aka, and its ties to the climate change discussion? So, um, Eliori, if I can begin by saying that when climate change first became a popular discussion on the international stage, or at least during my time working in government, it was mainly about its causes and effects, or the sciences, if you like, um, of the global phenomenon, and often from the spec perspectives of um, international researchers and studies with very little focus on the human dimension. When the Anotitong administration came in, climate change became a top priority for the government of Kiribati with increased advocacy and education in Kiribati and the world over about the plight of the frontline communities. Sadly though, despite the awareness raised on the topic even today, there is no clear international law that embraces or addresses the question of climate-induced displacement. Following the science and the IPCC reports, it's clear that it may be too late to reverse the problem and small islands need to start strategizing how best they can deal with displacement as a last case scenario. So the profound question of where do we go from here hits us harder every day, every year, and working towards options or solutions seems just the right thing to do. Coming back to your question, Eliora, this research is an important one because it poses a question on labor migration, which I believe will pave way for options that we could employ to address the problem. And this question is, can labor migration provide an option for climate-induced displacement in Kiribati? And the research will aim to provide a small island perspective on the human direct dimension of climate change. And it's also important, if I may add, that this the research being led by Pacific Islanders themselves instead of international researchers yeah. dominating the scene. I think it carries a lot more value, a lot more weight on the perspectives of the people from the front line. So the research provides a small island perspective, exploring the link between climate change and labor migration in Kiribati as a long-term option for climate-induced displacement. It analyzes two migration schemes, namely the Pacific Axis category or the PAC scheme, as we popularly know, which is a pathway to permanent residency in New Zealand. And the Pacific Labor Scheme, PLS, a labor migration program with no pathway to permanent migration. The study draws useful lessons from both schemes, providing an economic form of adaptation to climate change and argues that if strengthened, both schemes can maximize benefit to Kiribati as a response strategy. It's also impossible, I keep feeling that it's also impossible for Kiribati people to adapt to climate impact at home or domestically, and we are forced to adapt beyond our borders. So instead of becoming refugees in our land, we want to migrate with skills that our host country needs and simultaneously build an informed and safe future outside of Kiribati. Mm. Your Excellency, what are your thoughts on the resettlement discussion? Very soon, as other countries realize that they will go through the same fate, there's going to be a huge competition for resources from the countries who we might consider responsible for, for the problem. Okay? 
Now, even those countries who created the problems are finding that they are facing the real challenges as well. I mean, we are hearing right now what's happening in, in North America. We are hearing what's happening in different parts of the world with the floodings, the heat waves, uh, the, the bushfires, all right? And so now I, I, I've come to the conclusion that we're not, we'll never be able to get the resources from any, either from the international uh, um, community or most, not even from any country in order to build the resilience that we will need. And so it comes to the, we have to come to the brutal real, real, realization that we may, we will one day have to locate perhaps our entire population, okay? What I have been trying to do was for us to come to us, acknowledge that brutal reality and come to terms with it and, and plan accordingly, all right? We need to plan for it. And um, I must admit that much of the work that I've been doing was actually geared towards doing that. And uh, I've tried to in, in, encourage Australia and New Zealand to be partners in that. And I remember well my discussions with the, one of the prime ministers, and I won't say who, when we, we had a discussion, where I challenged them, well, why you are, you are bringing in some, something like 30 to 40,000 people from Asia every year to work as trained people, why don't you bring them to Pacific? We're supposed to be your friends, all right? And he said, oh, but you're not trained. And so I said, but so train us. And so now perhaps we are coming around to do that. And I, I remember that uh, the coming out of that meeting, it was a, a retreat, so it was a very informal session. And uh, I think what resulted was the, um, the APTC program. Uh, with New Zealand, we, the, what resulted was the, um, the RSC scheme, the Regional Seasonal Workers Scheme. And, uh, but for us, I, I must say that we were lucky that, that we got some, something quite good, uh, which is very much along the lines of what I had in mind. And this was the Kiribati Australia Nursing Initiative, where our young nurses would be trained in Australia, would be, would be um, able to stay and work in Australia, and uh, in, in time become citizens. And I actively encourage that. And up, Right now, we have a number of these young people uh, working and living in Australia. Uh, no doubt they become citizens. And so this was the kind of formulation that I'd always envisioned as being part of the, 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 the resettlement, the relocation program, resettling our people. And this is one, one of the things that I've always, and I must share this with you, Eleonora, is that, is to, I've always rejected the notion of refugees, all right? Climate refugees, because it, 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 well, it is not of our making, all right? And so we, we, need to, we, need to call, we need to call people to task for this happening to us. And, uh, but I think at the same time, I don't believe that we should continue to, 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 be, to remain dependent on, on the larger, the donor countries to come to our assistance. We've got to be able to find our own solutions. And so that was when the idea of the concept of migration with dignity came. And it, but it's not a new concept. It's just got to be a deliberate policy adopted, adopted by the uh, governments like us, uh, ours who need to migrate. I think it's already been happening. I mean, uh, it's just uh, we have young people working on, on foreign shipping, uh, sh uh, merchant ships. Okay, they don't migrate, but uh, what is happening is they, they have the, the, the capacity to do that. 
Okay. Also, you get the reaction of some of the people who say, no, we're not interested in going. And you will hear that mostly from the old people who cannot go anywhere in any case because they're not, they're not prepared to do that. And this is why the, uh, the concept of migration with dignity where people would be trained, they'd be prepared, qualified, and acculturated into the societies they would go to. Thank you for that, Your Excellency. Aka, I want to jump ahead and ask you to talk about your vision for the implementation of your research. How do you see it influencing policy and progressing the discussion around resettlement? Thanks, Eliora. Look, um, let me try and narrow down to how this research um, applies to some of the proposed um, way forwards. And the focus on labor migration being, you know, a tie-in with what we call the migration with dignity and the argument that we don't want to be refugees in our own land. We want to build our own resilience and that resilience does not necessarily translate in us defying the sciences and, you know, staying, remaining in, in Kiribati when the, the last case scenario is for us to, to re relocate somewhere else. But I guess the important question that has been cropping up in the discussion is where do we go? Where do we go from here? And if we were, if we were to, to prepare for that worst case scenario, it's not something that we're going to wake up tomorrow and, and say, okay, let's all hop onto a boat or a plane and move mm -hmm. elsewhere. I think it's something that we need to prepare as explained also by His Excellency. We need to prepare gradually, a, a process that requires um, equipping of our young people, to international skills so that they may migrate to demand-driven skills overseas. So the, the research is going to build on the existing labor mechanisms. And it's not a, a, a new ask. It's not something that we're asking that's uh, totally out of the blue. I think it's a, a momentum that's been built for many years throughout the Tong administration and with the Mamao-led administration at this point. It's something that they've also um, emphasized as important for, for Kiribati. Maybe for us is to really expand the, the participation of Kiribati. Maybe there needs to be special recognition, but we don't want to sensitize the issue and say, give us jobs because we're sinking. No. How do we you know, put our hand up and say, we've got the skills that you need. We're going to migrate with the, the trade skills and whatever talents that you, you are in short of and we'll provide that skill. So it you know, provides a win-win both for the host country and the, and the sending country. And, you know, the, the, the president during his time kept saying, we don't want to be refugees. We want to, to be um, skilled workers who migrate and can continue our lives uh, with dignity. Uh, Your Excellency, speaking of Australia, what do you think Australia can do to assist with this issue of people needing to be resettled in the face of the climate crisis? Okay. If I might add to uh, Aka's side of the story, uh, Eleonora, the, uh, yes, the question was, can Australia assist? My simple answer, of course, Australia has no choice but to assist. And uh, for the simple reason that it has the capacity to do it. Okay? I've always believed that anyone who has the capacity to do something for, uh, for somebody else has the obligation to do it. Okay? And so, on that basis, I think Australia has, not, not disregarding the fact that Australia has maybe made more of a contribution to the problem than we've had, okay? And, uh, 
And I think it's uh, Australia has got to be part of the solution. And I think I totally agree with what Ak is saying that I think there's a, there's a fear prevalent in Australian administrations that um, about the brown people coming in and maybe diluting the purity of the Australian. Uh, but I think we've got to understand that, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, we, this is why we have been advocating, you know, um, migration with dignity, because I think, look, look at America, look at the United States. It's one of the most successful, powerful countries, and it's a nation of migrants. So is Australia. Australia is a nation of migrants, but Australia does not have the kind of innovative thinking that, that the U.S. had. I, I remember speaking in Australia and saying, come on, where is Silicon Valley in Australia? Okay, you're sending your coal to China. You're sending your iron ore to China. You can become a superpower. You have the capacity to be that. But you don't have the skills, don't have commitment to be there. And I think, uh, I think, I, I, I truly believe that our people can contribute to building Australia. But Australia, but it's got to be, we got to play our parts, okay? Australia can do its part. We need to do our part, okay? We don't want to send people who will become a burden to the Australian community, who would become, uh, who, who would populate the slums, okay? We don't want that to happen. We want to send people who are prepared, committed, willing, and able to do that. I, I often joke when I meet our people in different countries in Australia and New Zealand, I, and I say, come on, you gotta educate yourselves, train yourselves, and I'd love to see you one day, some of you in parliament, and I'd love to see a prime minister, a Kiribati prime minister in Australia, or New Zealand, and that is quite possible. There's no reason at all why not. But we've got to believe in ourselves. And so, yes, I think Australia uh, can do a great deal, and it, it doesn't need to feel that it would lose um, by taking our people in. I think we can, it, we, it can be planned in a way that they, our people would benefit, and Australia would benefit even more, okay? The question, simple question is, Australia has the capacity to do it. But the simple question that really has not, nobody has been able to answer is, does it have the moral capacity to do what is right or not? Yes, that is, that is the question maybe. Um, the next question is for the both of you. How do you facilitate a substantive feeling of security for Pacific people in the face of climate change? I'll give my my <clears throat> best attempt at this question, but I'd like to uh, begin with the notion of the Australia Pacific Security College being developed as part of this uh, Boy Declaration. It's it's part of the commitment that Australia holds to the Pacific, right? <clears throat> and and I have been fortunate to to be one of the um, to become one of the recipients of the scholarship and. I think that that in itself is a demonstration of the commitment that Australia, uh, ANU in particular, um, holds towards addressing this uh, question, which is larger than, than life for us. Um, for me, I think we, we need to build on the 
regional architect, as I mentioned earlier. And and why do I keep coming back to this? It's it's because I believe the Australian government plays a, a leading role in, in this uh, setup, and one where the Pacific um, values the contributions and and um, support of uh, of a regional leader like uh, Australia. So building the the momentum from regional efforts in the Pacific Islands Forum, and translating this out to the um, various country responses. Uh, if I could um, go back to the migration with dignity and the uh, proposal for Australia to build on a labour migration option, I think uh, it's something that that we can call a can-do, something that can be done for, for the Pacific in, in the face of uh, mm-hmm. climate change. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. I think, as I remember, the question was, uh, how can we offer something that would give a sense of security to, to our people uh, under the present circumstance? Part of what the project that I've been involved in was trying to find the solution. How can we... And I've, I've always gone to these conferences, which I, I travel the world over attending, and I always say, what am I here for? Can I... Will I be able to come out of this conference and go back home with a solution in my hand to say, don't you worry. Whatever happens on climate change, this is the solution. Never been able to do that and still have not been able to do that. And so we need to deliver tangible, tangible, something concrete to our people to say, okay, when the waves come, you jump on this high ground. Uh, if, uh, if, if, our, if our islands become inevitable, um, maybe Australia Australia will, will be able to accommodate this. But uh, of course, what Fiji offered was perhaps the most challenging, but uh, certainly the most welcome commitment. And the only countries that's really stepped forward, I've been challenging every country to step forward. And I remember my presentation in Paris and I said, thank you, Fiji, for stepping forward. You know, uh, uh, rising to the challenge, and I didn't quite say that nobody else has, but that's been the problem. And uh, I've often, uh, Lenora, I've often referred to an analogy of what would happen when the climate change does the, the real impacts of climate change have. Because I always, I always, the, my division of what happened with the uh, the movie, uh, what the Titanic, there were those that were in the lifeboats. And the question was, was this? My question was this: Would those on the lifeboat bother to bring in those who are in the freezing water? Countries like Australia and other countries will be in the lifeboat. Will they pull us on board, or will they push us off? Okay. And so, so we need some firm commitment by someone or a group of people in the international community, some country to say, if and when. You have nowhere else to go. You've run out of options. We will bring you on board and we have the solutions for you. That's not being forthcoming yet, and we need that. I, I've just been involved in the recent d- discussion and I raised that same question. We keep talking about the, the what the cutting emissions, good, but we're well past that. We are gone. And so how do we change the rules? I think I think we've been trying to change the rules for a long time. 
place the liability on those responsible. Uh, make them pay compensation. Make them understand that they are responsible. Make them understand that they need to step forward in order to deal with the problem that we are facing, which, which they caused, okay? We've got to put them on the defensive instead of feeling that we are begging for salvation. They should be coming, stepping forward to say, we're so sorry we missed you up. Come, join us here, mm. okay? That's my take. Yeah. I think we've got to change that rule. We've got to change the, uh, the narrative. We've got to be the ones that are saying from the moral high ground, my God, you are terrible people. Try to be nice. Really interesting points you put forward, Your Excellency. Um, before we finish up today, do either of you have any last thoughts? Um, maybe I can chime in earlier and just uh, make a point about the urgency of the problem, the, the security problem facing the small islands of the Pacific. And I think there's a lot of misconception that this is a future scenario. A lot of this is going to happen <clears throat> later on in, in the future. So we're, we're sort of, you know, watching the times go by and waiting until whether the world comes to some agreement or resolution or not, this is something to be decided later on. But the urgency is for the Pacific to let the international community understand, in particular Australia, that this is something that's happening now. And when I say that, I think it's because the quality of life that we are receiving in an island that's you know grappling with the cha challenges of climate change whether it's coastal erosion or water salinity or, or you know home displacement displacement from home it, it's happening now it yeah. food security issues you know it, it may not be about us being displaced from our homes immediately but already we've had community some of our projects with the world bank have had to build um, rainwater harvesting systems because the North Tarawa, for example, some of the communities in Kiribati have very high salinity of um, salt, you know, high salinity in the fresh water supply. So it, it, these are the impacts that are happening now and it may not be as urgent as a displacement, but I think it's affecting our very way of life and, and, and will also affect our development. You know, it's a exacerbating our efforts to develop sustainably. How do we develop sustainably in, in the midst of all this happening? So uh, it's important for us to get the message out. And as the former president said, you know, this is something that's going to happen to everyone else. 70% of the populations in, in the world reside in, in, on, along the coastline. And maybe we're just the front lines for now, but it, it gives a early warning system to what the rest of the world will be um, facing if we do not take action from, from now. So again, you know, building resilience will have to be a gradual process for us. And it could begin from our communities. How can we move back, you know, away from the shoreline? But then if you consider the, the situation for Kiribati, there's no place to move back to. We, we will just fall, fall into the water if we keep moving back. So the coastline will get thinner and thinner and how, how much longer will we move back? So I think it, it, it makes a lot of sense for us to start working maybe separately as a country, you know, and, and then joining efforts with the other Pacific um, like-minded countries 
working as a regional setup, you know, working as a Pacific Islands forum, <clears throat> and then working alongside Australia to see how we can um, address uh, this uh, challenge. I've often considered and I've heard yeah. being thrown around, but it's not a new concept. And this is the idea of compact hive arrangements, all right? Uh, we already have it in, uh, with New Zealand and uh, the U.S. the Cook Islands where there is freedom of movement and what have you. Uh, we have it in, the, um, the, in Micronesia with uh, the relationships with the U.S. Um, Australia doesn't quite have one, but it, I think it seems to work well with some countries like Papua New Guinea, maybe because they have a lot more resources than we do. We run out of resources, all right? But we, we have a lot of fish. And I, I remember one of the former Australian prime ministers suggesting that we, we give our uh, easy to Australia and come, uh, as uh, maybe that would be our trade-in. But I think there is I think there is scope for compact type arrangements, um, because the alternative would be that people in countries like ours would just simply disappear because we keep being pushed off the, the lifeboat. Okay? And, uh, but I think we need to maybe start breaking ground today by setting up what's already in existence between other countries, like as I say. And um, I know that uh, the US recently reviewed your compact uh, uh, arrangement with the countries with whom they have these arrangements. And uh, there was, I was there during the discussions in Washington and there was a, a suggestion that perhaps Kimber should form part of that being in, 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 in more in the northern uh, Pacific in Micronesia. But uh, that might be an issue that's worth looking at, worth uh, exploring because uh, I've really banged my head trying to find any other options. But yes, I understand that you know there are. It's not easy to negotiate this with people who, whose uh, who are, whose mind is about getting something, whatever. In any relationship, in any arrangement, it is about what they can get out of it. Okay, it's not about. It's not always about what they can give. Okay, we. I think it's about time we we approach this in a different way. So maybe the compact type arrangement is a less painful way of uh, of uh, initiating something that will eventually become something else. Amazing. I think we can end on that note. I want to thank you both for joining me today. Kambas and Rabwa, to you, Aka Riman, and to you, Your Excellency, Mr. Anote Tong. Thank you for sharing your time and your knowledge. Um, that wraps up another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder. You can find a link to this episode on our website, pacificsecurity.net. You can always find us on Facebook at Australia Pacific Security College or on Twitter at PSC underscore ANU. And you can listen to the Pacific Wayfinder on Google, Apple and Spotify podcasts. The music of the theme song that you're listening to is Tabaran by Not Drowning Waving. And please tune in next time for more discussions on the Pacific Wayfinder.